Welcome to the May 10th, 2021 edition of Digging Out. I'm Claudia Shamba, your host. This is part two of my interview with Jacqueline Keeler, a Diné Ehantawan Lakota writer and activist, talking about her latest book, Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands. So I looked at the Revolutionary War, and what I found was kind of shocking. What I found was that most of what we know about the Revolutionary War, I highly suspect, is propaganda. Back and, to the algorithm, uh, listeners. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that in this case, the algorithm of colonization drove the Revolutionary War. Because it, as I always compare it to the Ia, which is a traditional Dakota monster, where it's this monster that eats and eats and eats, eats entire tribes and needs to eat to live. Mm-hmm. And, and what threatened this particular aspect of the algorithm of colonization was uh, the settlement of the French and Indian War. And actually, it was this algorithm that caused the French and Indian War. Because I don't know if you know this, but uh, the individual who um, was responsible for the event that set off this world war, and, and the, you know, we call it the French and Indian War here in the United States, but in, in Europe, they call it the Seven Years War. And, and historians actually call it World War Zero. And the individual who set that into action was George Washington. As a young man, he was about 20 years old. He was sent by the Commonwealth of Virginia. Um, with a military force acting in concert with an Indian ally named the Half Chief, and to challenge the French who were building um, forts along the Ohio River to solidify their claim to the Ohio River Valley. And the Commonwealth of Virginia had a claim as well um, under their, their charter with the British government or the British crown. And so they, they were trying to defend their own self-interest to the area. And so he went there very young, inexperienced, and his group ended up actually murdering a French diplomat. And then the the French overwhelmed them at Fort Necessity. And then he was made to sign a letter in French, which he could not read, admitting guilt to the murder of this diplomat, which was an international incident, and then set off the war. And hard so, was it to find that story, so to speak? I'm just no, it's it's not hard at all. It's, it's actually, okay. you know, just commonly known. Uh, well, it's not commonly known, but it's, it's by, by historians, it's commonly known. And this is, once again, the algorithm where the, the colony is looking for more land uh, and needs more land, needs more Indian land. And so that's why he was there in the first place. So it was this, the colonists constantly pushing, pushing into Indian land that led to the war, and actually a war that doubled the national debt of both Britain and France, you know, leading them down you know, a certain route. And so King George III, after the war was settled, he wanted to make sure the colonists stayed on their side. And so this is why soldiers were quartered in uh, colonist homes. This is why they are forced to pay things like the Stamp Act to pay for a war they started. And so this is where we have, we have been fed propaganda about what the war was about. So, and when you read the actual uh, Declaration of Independence and you get beyond the first few bullet points, you see that what the, mo- the bulk of what they're talking about is the settlement of the French and Indian War. And following the Treaty of Versailles, they actually, uh, King George III in 1763, issued the Proclamation Line of 1763, which went down the Appalachian Mountains and said that the colonists could not pass that line, that they were basically going to be frozen along the coast, which was in the best interest of the British. It's easier for them to you know, control the population if it's along the coast. But for the colonists, whose entire paradigm was set on acquiring more and more Indian land, this was unacceptable. 
And so this is why they're calling out King George III. This is why they're talking about merciless Indian savages, because they feel that King George III has basically sided with the Indians in this matter against them. And uh, territory. Yes. And so, and, and you know, if they had not revolted, you know, we probably still would have an Iroquois Confederacy, like most of New York State would probably still be the Iroquois Confederacy, which stood for a thousand years until after the Revolutionary War, when it was parceled out by the winners. And uh, one of those, of course, was Governor Morris, who was one of the wealthiest men in the world. I mean, if you, it's so funny reading these bios of all these founding fathers, I mean, excepting John Adams, of course, um, they were all like amongst the most wealthiest men in the world. <laughs> I would say that the Revolutionary War was led by like the Bezos and Gates of the era. To me. Well, as you've mentioned in, in some interviews, like there, it's the one percenters versus the one percenters. Yes, it was it was a battle between elites. And so when after they won the Revolutionary War, of course, the Iroquois Confederacy was their lands were almost completely taken. And there were a few places where some of the it had broken the Confederacy. And that's another story. But anyway, so they uh, but Governor Morris got a third of the entire state and to parcel out and sell. So, and all of these founding fathers, nearly all of them were investors in land companies. Um, a lot of them were investors in the Ohio Land Company, you know, George Washington, even Mary Reverend Lewis's father, you know, Jefferson, they were all investors. And they were all investors in land that was Indian land, land they didn't even possess, but they were expecting to possess. So they created these companies to lay down these claims. Yeah, I mean, and they, they profited from them. Yeah. And then, of course, later, the common people who wanted to move into these new lands, you know, the Bundys stayed in North Carolina for a very long time. They didn't move. They moved in with a Quaker group into Indiana. And they were there until almost the 20th century. They didn't come to the Southwest until, I think, just a few years before 1900. Like, And so it's not true that they were there for all time. <laughs> but yeah, but they, uh, they were forced to have to pay high prices to purchase the land from these big land company owners or wealthy men. And then on top of that, the money was worthless. The, the taxes were very high because they were being forced to pay for the Revolutionary War as well. And then, of course, you have the Whiskey Rebellion. And, and George Washington put that down with a lot of military force against his own people. You know, and I go back further in history with the whole creation of race and, you know, in Virginia in order to protect the rights, the, the elites, the, the planter elites against a coalition of poor plant landowners and European indentured servants and people stolen from Africa and held in bondage, you know, they use that to divide and conquer. But yeah, so it's, it's a story that I think we need to know accurately in order to, to, to deal with the present, um, because we can't build a future on propaganda. You can see what it leads to. Here we have the sort of, we just saw the actual insurrection at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. on January 6th this year, led by QAnon supporters. Uh, what I'm trying to analyze here, and which I think is more beneficial to what we're trying to do than simply talking down to Bundy and QAnon followers and Trump supporters, is to examine the mechanism which makes them the way they are. And it is a lot of them. I mean, and it is the concept of whiteness that we're that it's part of the whole thing of, of of examining and taking it apart piece by piece and how it works, how it functions, like like a a watch or a machine. And this is the algorithm, understanding how it functions. And a lot of people, when Rick Santorum said all that, those, the, the horrible stuff that he said about Native Americans and, and this Christian country, people thought they could rush in and educate him. But, you know, this machine just doesn't care about that kind of thing. You know what I mean? It won't even process that information. It's constructed this way. And so what we need to understand is that algorithm. 
And we need to understand how do we actually create a third way that is ethical, that helps all of us live together safely? How do we do this? And, and that's what my book is, you know, by analyzing, you know, the events of 2016 and how it led to the, how it was, you know, an insight into what was coming with the Trump administration and also with the present standoff we have today, you know, we need to understand this far more accurately and using the propaganda of the past, particularly that of American exceptionalism is not helpful. You know, I would say I find, I cringe even when I hear like progressive candidates um, or, you know, politicians using the language of American exceptionalism, because it denies the reality of occupation and the expropriation of wealth from our homelands and indigenous people. And, and so then I counter that also with a real look at how, particularly for the people of Standing Rock, since my family has a, a long relationship with that reservation, as well as our own, how, particularly how myself, uh, as a, you know, someone of Dakota Lakota descent, I'm, I'm actually enrolled in the Navajo Nation, so I'm not a citizen of any Dakota tribe, uh, although I qualify to enroll in my father's tribe, but how I would, based on how, what I was taught uh, and what I read from my own family, you know, what, what this mean, what that event meant to us, what happened at Standing Rock in 2016 and how it reveals a very different set of not only an origin story, but a history than what the Bundys espouse. And I see the Bundys as basically exerting their rights as colonists which is very different than exerting our rights as Indigenous people. So I, I, the book, actually, I have at the beginning some oral stories that were told in my family. I think that only maybe two of them have been published, one for sure, the other one, I think so. And then but the third one has never been published before in the written form. And, and so I, um, I shared those three stories. As, a, as an American, someone raised in and educated in the Judeo-Christian culture, I am very familiar with, of course, you know, sayings from the Bible, you know, from ancient Greco-Roman culture, you know, and this is sort of the, the kind of common language that we all share, but we don't have that for um, indigenous culture. So much of it has been lost. I've been very fortunate that my family have been writers. I see this book stand off as part of a trilogy of books written by my family members, starting with uh, my great great aunt Ella Deloria, my grandmother's aunt, and uh, who wrote Speaking of Indians in 1944. She wrote that following the Indian Reorganization Act in the 30s. And sort of it was um, sort of a her look, a snapshot at what our culture means, what, what the Lakota Dakota people's culture means, and also um, what the present political then in the 1940s the political climate meant for Indian people for our continuation and uh, she herself was an ethnologist and linguist she she worked with Franz Boas at Columbia University and she was fluent in all three dialects of our language and and her work is the basis of most of the um, Dakota and Lakota language um, dictionaries that you see today and she also interviewed Dakota Lakota people starting in 1916 and going into her death in 1971 and uh, and most of these people were uh, people who had lived before the Americans came. So it's really great to read and hear their voices and their recollections of their lives and their perspective, which I think is often missing, and which as a member of a Dakota family, I was the beneficiary of. And so I try to bring that perspective and inform others who, who are not familiar with it. And then, of course, her nephew's book, My Grandmother's Cousin by Deloria Jr., his book, uh, which was published, I think, in 1969, after he had, it's called, called Custer Died for Your Sins, after he had served as the executive director of the National Congress of American Indians in Washington, D.C., 
and during the civil rights movement in the 60s. And so it's sort of his take on, it's also, I think it's also called a, um, an Indian manifesto. And it was that and God is Red and some of his other books um, were really fundamental in sort of creating uh, the philosophy and outlook of the Red Power movement that followed in the 1970s. And, and so it was um, quite influential. And, and he was um, an enrolled citizen of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. Uh, my grandmother and my great aunt were uh, Yankton Sioux tribal members, and so was my father. But yeah, I think that trying to show like how we dealt with the issues and how we brought what we know, um, what we what we have managed to sort of pass down generation generation, and then an analysis of how it means within the context of the larger American political sphere is. I think these three books are pretty much unique in for American Indian families to have this sort of documentation. And, you know, it's something that, that hopefully more families will do, have opportunities to do, and also that, that will help inform my descendants and my uh, nieces and nephews and cousins, children, as well, their relationship to uh, their ancestry and also their tribe and, and the survival of, of our people. Thank you, Jacqueline. And with your permission, I tried really to give as much space for storytelling. And I would like in a kind of a hosting role to bring up a few things. For one, I just wanted to acknowledge, as presumptuous as that word choice is, it takes privilege to acknowledge something else. And so I'm going to own that, but I don't have another word for now. But acknowledge, it must be exhausting to take apart such an unwieldy algorithm of a history origin story, like the one you've laid out for us today. Well, I think... You know, it's something that the thing is being native is, you know, I I actually do have been doing a lot of research and my next book will be about pretendians and masketry and pretendians are people who pretend to be native for, uh, for their careers and and personal acclaim. And, and I'd like uh, you back to when you, when that's, yeah, I was going to close with that, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about pretendians. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, the book is going to be hope is the working title is Pretendians and Mascots, uh, Illusion and Delusion. And, um, you know, I worked, um, I was one of the co-founders of Not Your Mascot. And, and what always struck me was white people really want to hang on to their Indian uh, mascot. And then looking at the phenomenon of, um, of ethnic fraud with particularly with native academic, quote unquote, native academics. And the fraud is, and pardon me, the fraud is a very zero-sum situation. It's running in the front of the line for very few opportunities. So it's not like a coexisting condition. It's at the expense of an indigenous person having said appointment given to honor Yes, them. yeah. What, what's really astounding, and I think that people have seen that a bit with um, Rachel Dolezal's case, is the unwillingness of frauds to give up the con, right? And it's uh, what we're finding is right now we're going through a list of 190 uh, suspected uh, frauds, and and we're finding that only four so far have any native identity. Which so the array is you know well over 94 percent are straight up fakes, like they're pushing a complete lie and they're doing it successfully because no one's checking. So it it's quite shocking the the data we're getting out of this research. But getting back to um, why question, yes, yes, you know, well, what the reason I brought it up was because. You know, I, I have an essay I wrote years ago about Thanksgiving. It's called Thanksgiving and the Hidden Heart of Evil. I wrote it when I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area. It was published originally by the San Francisco Examiner. 
And then I did an audio version for KPFA in Berkeley. You know, I, I give a story about when I was about five years old and starting kindergarten. And my mom told me that, that not to listen to what they say about Indian people in school, right? That it's all lies and that she would be my teacher. She would teach me. And I remember I was, I think I was like sitting on the countertop uh, in our kitchen and she was washing dishes and, and the bubbles were, you know, all over the place. And, and I remember, you know, she explained to me, you know, how our land was taken. And I remember being so enraged and so angry. Uh, I was just five years old, this tiny little, little girl. And, and I wanted to do something about it to make it right. But of course, unlike a pretendian, I don't feel like I have the right to, to claim things without any basis or to speak for people, or to pretend to having some great knowledge of Indian culture. And so I think for actual Native people, it's quite a burden to figure it out. I mean, we're not just only burdened by trauma, but we're also, you know, by self-doubt. Do we know enough? We know what we don't know, basically. And so we're not out there doing what frauds do and, you know, thumping our trusts and writing, putting ourselves at the front of the line. We have too many dealing and grappling with our situation and our family's legacy, um, you know, is, is, is a complex thing and something we often do alone before the advent of social media. I think on, you know, a lot of social media, Facebook, and now of course, you know, um, apps like uh, Clubhouse, Native people are meeting and talking. And, is that performing uh, well? The Clubhouse is that? Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about it. I've, I've spoken on there a few times. And it seems to be really good. And, and I think with Twitter, it got really overwhelmed with people who were a lot of pretendians, <laughs> you know, like a lot of people who um, can start a Twitter account and create their own native identity, right? So it's, it's gotten a little confused there. So, uh, and there are frauds running uh, Clubhouse discussions as well there, you know, some people contacting me about a few that, but native women go on there and challenge them and stuff. And, but yeah, I, I'm not that familiar with, I've just been on there a few times. But, uh, but it, what I've heard from other people is that it's really wonderful to get on and talk. And it's something that as Native people, we rarely have a chance to do. I mean, you know, the national media doesn't deal with our issues very much. You know, once every 10 years, they write a story about, oh, my God, there's poverty on the Pine Ridge Reservation or this sort of poverty porn coverage or, you know, these sort of tragic histories. But our own realities, you know, are, are varied, are different. Um, are complex. You know, I come from two very different Indian families. My father's family's experience is very different and, and culture is very different than that from my mother's. So having to puzzle out the two and, and come to some kind of terms that I feel well grounded in and, and I'm not presenting more than I know. I'm not misrepresenting myself because if you are part of a community or an Indian family, you are called out for that very harshly. You know, like you will not see, uh, you know, my cousins who are from the res going out there and declaring themselves some ma- magical shaman because, you know, you're, fa- you're actually accountable to your family and they'll smack you down pretty hard. I mean, and the community will smack you down really hard for doing something like that. A fake has no ties to the community and can do whatever they want. I mean, and that's, that's the ultimate colonial thing, isn't it? It's just what the bunnies were asking for over land. But yeah, so I think that for me to deal with this issue, it's, it's something that I've had to deal with from when I was very young. And to see the country being split apart the way it is, you know, and seeing these very, the, the two very different handlings of these standoffs uh, in 2016, you know, where the Bundys were treated pretty respectfully. I mean, there's a great YouTube video, I think, put up by the Oregonian showing Ammon Bundy meeting with the sheriff 
of Harney County. And it's all, it's like a scene from a Western movie of the two good guy cowboys, the white hats meeting with each other and discussing it's things. casting the way you put it in your book. It's yes. Yeah. And then, uh, but then you compare that to the relationship between the sheriff of Morton County in North Dakota and the on the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, where in early August of 2016, the uh, chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and and other council people and the Lakota woman who's a doctor at the, at the hospital there, um, they were all arrested for peacefully protesting by the sheriff and they were strip searched. And you have to realize that the chairman of a sovereign nation is basically, you know, uh, would normally enjoy some sort of diplomatic immunity, not be strip searched by the local sheriff. Do you know I mean, you know, they weren't, they weren't armed. They weren't occupying something. They were just standing on the road, joining a peaceful protest. And it, they were arrested, several of them, and strip searched and quite invasively. And, uh, and, and artifacts defiled, I'm just going to say. Yeah, that was later. That was um, in October of 2016 um, after the treaty camp. But yeah, it was, um, and that, but that was the reaction. I mean, here you have the Bundys and their followers coming and going and, and never not being stopped, right? There's no checkpoint there, um, like was put up at, out, right outside the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's entrance, which was basically a form of an embargo, an economic embargo on the reservation during the No Dapple uh, camp. But the, um, I, you know, it's just, it's pretty obvious there's a difference. I mean, and, and, uh, and, and I want to say too, excuse me, Jacqueline, that the, the kind of backlog that both standoff parties were able to tap into, the Bundys could talk, they knew that there were fresh memories of the Weaver uh, case, Ruby Ridge case, and the Waco, Waco yeah. case that they were, they knew that there would be restraint practiced by law enforcement agencies so as not to have a repeat of either of those two. But yeah. ironically, nothing about massacres over a century ago, none of that is used as a way of demonstrating the need for restraint from law enforcement. So that, that yeah. asymmetry is so persistent. And it's, it's due to this, this really different relationship. What I, I've described in the book that the Bundys were basically holding themselves hostage and daring them to kill them. And so, uh, you know, they kind of say that a lot too. It, it reminded me of that scene from Blazing Saddles where uh, the black sheriff comes into town and the white people are all angry. And then he sort of, he then takes himself hostage and then the people get concerned. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously it's different, but it's, it's that same thing. They, they basically took themselves hostage. I mean, they didn't have enough firepower to possibly fight back, but it's, it's a way it's, all of this is actually a way of accruing power. You know, their legal arguments are bunk, you know, uh, everything is bunk, but yet they have access to power and they know it. I mean, look at when the Hammonds were hardened by Trump, and then they were met um, at the prison by a billionaire and flown in his private jet back to their ranch in Harney County. So they know they have access to power. That's why they're so smug. And, and so with the, uh, with the election of Trump and, and, and during Trump's administration, uh, the BLM, the deputy solicitor of the BLM, you know who it was? It was that same Karen Bud Fallon, who, uh, who was their- Clyde Brush Rebellion attorney, attorney go-to. Yes. Yes, that who believes that sheriffs are the most powerful people in the world. Yeah, and she had sued the, that agency for decades using RICO laws, uh, racketeering laws, accusing federal employees of racketeering for enforcing basic laws and codes. <laughs> so Jacqueline, there's so much to cover. I, I want this to be, these are stories that compel listeners to get their own copies 
I want to make for, if I may, the last sort of item for your consideration, the very last question is considering the persistent algorithms in our understanding of American history, the history making, but it's, it's, it's such an irony, but the secretary of the Department of the Interior confirmed and sworn in Interior Secretary Deb Holland, former Congresswoman, in her relationship to the Dakota Access Pipeline, that was the reason she ran for Congress, but what are your hopes for her sort of helping undo some of this algorithm? In one capacity, she's going to be trying to reverse the awarding of the medals to the Wounded Knee military. Yeah, it's interesting. Out of Stanley Rock came some pretty uh, successful political candidates, uh, not only presently uh, Interior Secretary Deb Holland, formerly a New Mexico representative to Congress from New Mexico, and also she is a citizen of the Laguna Pueblo Nation in New Mexico, and also AOC. She had also gone to Stanley Rock and was inspired to run as well. So that's really, that's part of the power that came out of the uh, Lakota and Dakota people standing up for themselves and reasserting their sovereignty. I'm really excited about Deb Holland, I'd have to say. I've been really impressed with the things she's done so far. I mean, the idea that a Native woman heads up a department that oversees a lot of the United States, um, most of Nevada and and Oregon, but it does put her um, in the crosshairs with uh, these rural rebels, I guess, because, you know, they have a deep interest in how um, the agencies that she runs, including the BLM, how they oversee land, right? They're, uh, they have a deep interest in having that public land privatized and their own control over it um, to be complete. I'm scared for her sometimes. I mean, one of the things that happened under the Trump administration was, of course, the reduction of Bears Ears by 85%, which I hope she, you know, she's definitely going to work to restore, but also the Bears Ears National Monument, I should say, in southeastern Utah. But also uh, the the BLM, the staff were removed from Washington, D.C. Ju- and put the Grand in- Junction. Far, far yeah. away. Yeah, they are moved into they are moved to be closer to the local rural population. And the purpose of that was simply so that the rural population could have more influence over them, right? And, I and some it was of also this, to empty out the agency that veterans well, it was, wanted they to want, stay put in D.C. Yeah, they wanted them local so that, and, and you, you see this um, in, in many, um, when I was doing interviewing at um, with Mal here, and I spoke to members of the Fish and Wildlife Service, and of course, they all had to go into hiding. They were all, had to, their lives were disrupted. They, they were placed all over, you know, other places secretly. And because they were being harassed by the Bundy supporters, violently so sometimes, and their families were being um, intimidated. And, and even the sheriff of Harney County, his wife had her tires slashed, I think she had to go into hiding in a separate county. And, and so this intimidation that they do of the agency staff, that's why they wanted them in their communities, so they could intimidate them. And then also, um, one of the things I was told by folks, I did another article about the Forest Service here in Oregon, and some of the folks were telling me that when local people are hired to fill those positions, they don't enforce the regulations for their family members or for their, their friends in the county. And so having it localized means that the local people have power over how these uh, regulations are enforced. They have all kinds of power. They can intimidate the staff into not doing things. I mean, I think during the Malachir Wildlife Refuge takeover, it was unsafe to even drive a car that had the, um, the, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service logo on it, a truck. And so, of course, that removal of BLM staff from Washington, D.C. was done 
without consulting the tribes. And of course, the tribes have a great deal of interest in working with the BLM and other agencies of the Department of the Interior. The Bureau of Indian Affairs is in the Department of the Interior, which oversees um, things with the tribes. So I'm, I'm worried that when she, she will probably make the decision to bring them back to D.C., which is what the tribes want. And, and then she will face the rage of the white rural population. And I could go on and on about how this works, the dynamics. Of course, you know, having land have more votes than people. So like, you know, if you live in California, which, which you do, you know, you have only two senators, right? But if you live in Wyoming and you have a population of what, I think it's less than half a million people, you know, you have 250,000 people have their own U.S. senator. Believe me, Jacqueline, this is a scab that gets pulled off every half hour here yeah. in, in so, yeah. California. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's what that's about the senator people who vote for an L.A. city council. So this gives rural people far more power. And also I, I analyze the role of county governments and all this because, you know, of course, the sheriff in the county that actually goes back to feudal times when the earl or the count that the county is named after the feudal lord and the sheriff was appointed by the feudal lord or was the feudal lord often, you know, the, the way that this little island system of counties from England has been, has been spread across this whole continent. You know, it needs to be analyzed far more carefully because particularly what I saw when I was covering the Bears Ears issue was San Juan County was being uh, controlled by a, a Mormon white minority. And they were also kind of, they were sucking at the teat of federal dollars. So all of these counties, the federal dollars that go down there, there are these very prominent white families that live in these counties who have control over that money. And they employ their, their offspring with that money. They buy things with that money. So there's all this power that comes down through the federal dollars that go to the county system that basically empower white supremacy. What's happened in San Juan County is that the Navajo Nation sued the uh, San Juan County under the uh, Voting Rights Act. And, uh, and they managed to, to win. They found that the uh, Navajo voters, who were the majority in the county, they were all put into one district. So there were three districts, so they could never control the county, while the white population had two districts. And all the dollars would not go to Native communities, uh, the infrastructure dollars, all kinds of dollars. And, um, and so this is how the difference in power structure between you know, Native communities and white communities in these rural states, how it's maintained. And of course, there are ways in which the Native communities are fighting back. I mean, if you look at any red state, there's a few blue voting areas, and those are usually the reservations. And so when you see what happened in Arizona, where the Navajo Nation, and I covered this in the 2018. In November 2020, right. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you see that the, 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 these Native communities, there are three large counties in Arizona, which are totally Navajo. Um, they all voted for uh, Senator uh, Mark Kelly, yeah. And, uh, and also before that for Senator Sinema. And so are turning that state blue. I mean, their entire U.S. Senate delegation is now Democrats, right? So it, the power that these communities have is real and they're, and they're working harder to organize them. I, I covered it actually in depth in the May issue of Sierra Magazine. My last assignment before the pandemic, I traveled across the Navajo Nation interviewing everyone from the president of the Navajo Nation to my little cousin in Cameron, Arizona. Uh, so I did a, a deeper dive there. So, folks, I want you to get your own copy of Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement and the American Story of Sacred Lands, published by Tory Press. And you can finish the analogy I started with in the first part of this interview, Take One Egg, how that analogy applies in every single 
example that Jacqueline Keeler has unpackaged for us in understanding the algorithms through line of our understanding of where we are in this moment, physically and politically, philosophically, culturally. So Jacqueline Keeler, thank you so much for your time for the parts one and two of this Digging Out episode. I really appreciate your taking the time for us. Yeah, thank you for having me. My guest was Jacqueline Keeler, Diné Ihankwan, Lakota Dakota, author and historian with her new book, Standoff, Standing Rock, the Bundy Movement, and the American Story of Sacred Lands, published by Tory House. Available through your favorite independent book dealer. We are recording this on May 1st, 2021. Thank you for listening all. Talk with you next week. Thank you.